Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All five passengers on that missing Titanic sub sadly are dead. The lead starts right now. The Titanic wreckage area, now the site of yet another tragedy after debris believed to be from the missing submersible is found with the passengers feared dead and wreckage on the ocean floor. Rescue operations now shift from rescue to recovery. Plus, the safety concerns flagged well before this operation. One contractor who worked with OceanGate says there was an experimental decision during construction of the vehicle of the vessel. And in the wake of this tragedy, CNN is going to examine deep sea exploration and the inherent dangers that come along with these kinds of curious mind expeditions. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead and a tragic ending to the search for the missing sub. Minutes ago, the U.S. Coast Guard confirmed debris from the submersible has been found on the sea floor near the wreckage of the Titanic. Rear Admiral John Mauger says the debris field is consistent with a, quote, catastrophic implosion of the sub. This morning, an ROV, or remote-operated vehicle, from the vessel Horizon Arctic discovered the tail cone of the Titan submersible approximately 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic on the seafloor. On behalf of the United States Coast Guard and the entire Unified Command, I offer my deepest condolences to the families. The U.S. Coast Guard is still working through the exact timeline, but we do know the Titan sub set off Sunday and lost contact with the chip on the surface of the ocean about an hour and 45 minutes into its planned two-hour descent to the ocean floor. The company that operates the sub, OceanGate, just released a statement this afternoon saying in part, quote, We now believe that our CEO Stockton Rush, Shazada Dawood, and his son Suleiman Dawood, Hamish Harding and Paul-Henri Nargile have sadly been lost. These men were true explorers who shared a distinct spirit of adventure and a deep passion for exploring and protecting the world's oceans. Our hearts, with these, our hearts are with these five souls and every member of their families during this tragic time. We grief the loss of life and joy they brought to everyone they knew, unquote. Huh. Have sadly been lost. That was the term you heard of that, have sadly been lost. An interesting use of the passive voice there from the company ultimately behind this horrible accident. Let's bring in CNN's Miguel Marquez in St. John's, Newfoundland, where the ship and sub began their ill-fated journey. Miguel, although they have found the debris, my understanding is that the search on the ocean floor is not over. Is that correct? 
it is not over. They want to figure out more about what happened, why it happened, how it happened. They want to uh, map that debris field more finely. They want to see if they can recover not only debris, but perhaps uh, remains of some of those victims. Here is how the uh, Rear Admiral of the U.S. Coast Guard put it. This is a incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor. Uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. And so uh, we'll continue to uh, work and continue to uh, search uh, the area uh, down there, but uh, I, I don't have an answer for uh, prospects at this time. So, and what is interesting about what he said in the way they described this catastrophic implosion is that the, the debris field is in sort of two areas. They found the front part of the capsule in one area and then the rear part at the other. The closest uh, to the Titanic was 1,600 feet, so consistent with where it was headed uh, when just something absolutely catastrophic happened and uh, everything stopped. Jake. Miguel, a reporter uh, asked the rear admiral there whether there was any suggestion that a difference in the timing or the speed of the rescue effort could have made a difference, could have resulted in any of the uh, sub-passengers uh, being saved. Uh, what did the rear admiral say? Uh, in, in so many words, that the, they could have had all the resources in the world there in seconds, and it wouldn't have made a difference. It, it sounds like shortly, sometime shortly after that sub lost contact with the mothership an hour and 45 minutes into about a nine hour dive that they were doing, that there was this catastrophic event. And at those, at that depth, at those pressures, uh, it, there was nothing that anybody could have done to save them. So the, they, they, in good faith, tried to find them because they had an absence of information. Uh, they, they weren't sure whether they were alive or dead. They weren't sure if they had survived whatever happened. So they, they went on instinct, which was to try to, to save them if they were out there. But sadly, it, it just sounds like that would have been impossible. Jake? It sounds like the, the theory, the operating theory, is that the catastrophic, catastrophic event happened Sunday. Uh, so we're four days from that. Correct. I assume that they're going to keep searching, but hope of recovering um, the bodies is... is pretty slim at this point uh very slim and it it's it, it is hard to understand sort of what happened or where it happened how clo how close to the to the seabed it happened uh but uh if there was a cat catastrophic implosion you know bodies everything would have scattered quite widely the the debris field that it's in two parts uh, uh, that it it completely came apart leaves very little hope that they will find major pieces of the debris much less uh, any of the remains of the victims what else are we hearing from oceangate uh, the company if anything uh, not a lot I think there's a lot of shock I think that they you know talking to folks with Ocean Gate today uh, talking to people who had been on the sub here in st. John's um, there was a lot of hope that they could actually find them they had great belief in the 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 research and the construction and the materials uh, of this uh, sub of the uh, submersible it had gone down there several times it had see it had passed uh, some 
uh, ability to, to do deep sea diving because it had gone down. P.H. Narjolet is a very experienced deep sea diver and, and people say, look, he would not be part of this if he didn't trust it. Um, so I think all of that, it just it comes as a surprise that this has happened. Obviously, other people had uh, a different take on it, but it is a very small community. They, they are very technically adept uh, and you know, they all watch each other very carefully. So I think I think in this community, this will be uh, discussed for many years to come. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez in Newfoundland. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Andrew Norris. He's a retired Coast Guard captain and a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Um, thanks for being with us. What outstanding questions do you have after hearing the U.S. Coast Guard update? Well, first of all, thanks for having me uh on the show, it's an incredibly, but really not surprising, tragic end uh, to this uh, saga. So the questions to me are, are pretty much answered. Uh, the The description of the debris initially in, in the early in the day was described as a debris field that left a lot of uh, questions. But the specifics where they recovered the nose or not recovered, but discovered the nose cone or the tail cone and parts of the the, the hull of this thing. I make it quite clear that uh, it, in fact, uh, is uh, that, that it was destroyed almost certainly by implosion. So uh, as uh, was documented earlier, the questions from now at this point are going to be to document the scene to try to figure as much uh, what happened. There will uh, undoubtedly be a joint Canadian-U.S. investigation into this to, to try to learn some lessons so to prevent these types of tragedies from happening in the future. How would a ship like this implode? Uh, I mean, it seems like that would be, you know, basic goal number one to construct a ship that will not implode, given the tremendous pressure on the ship as you go down in the sea. Exactly. I mean, that has to be uh, sort of consideration number one in putting these uh, these cons- putting these type of things together and constructing these. Uh, I, I heard a New York Times uh, podcast, uh, The Daily, today that described it was three tons of pressure per square inch. And that would be an Empire State uh, building uh, where, where weight of lead uh, trying to bust into this uh, enclosed uh, vehicle. So there's, a, there's an incredible amount of pressure at, at that depth. And uh, in this case, the uh, vessel was unique in a lot of ways, including that they used carbon fiber for the main hull construction. That was uh, unique and not necessarily to industry standards. And that is, is certainly going to be the subject of quite some inquiry, I would think, uh, down the road. The U.S. Coast Guard um, said this afternoon that remote operations are going to continue on the ocean floor. What, what exactly are they going to be doing down there? I, I would expect that they are going to be uh, documenting the scene as much as possible so they can determine as much as possible what happened, what happened so as to inform the later casualty investigation. Anytime there's a Marine casualty uh, in, under US, in waters under U.S. jurisdiction or a U.S. vessel, there's an, a, an investigation. And with the ultimate uh, goal of determining what happened and and further to determine whether steps need to be taken through in the form of new laws, new regulations, or whatever it is to prevent uh, something like this from 
uh, happening again. So I would assume that that is what they are doing uh, on the scene. Otherwise, uh, as uh, I think your previous reporter mentioned, uh, the Admiral said, you know, incredibly unforgiving environment down there. The likelihood of any kind of recovery of remains is 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 slim to none. Uh, so, yeah, it's really mostly documenting the scene for lessons learned. How will officials be able to put together an exact timeline of what happened, given the fact that the they lost comms about an hour 45 into the two-hour descent and nine-hour trip? I would have to assume that that is the point where the implosion occurred. And uh, so an implosion like that at those depths is instantaneous. Uh, So in terms of a timeline, it's really just uh, probably at about the time, if they had any sort of signal event where there was comms and then the comms went out at a particular moment, that would be a pretty good indication when that implosion occurred. But as for the implosion itself, it was instantaneous. And so there's really no particular timeline beyond that. Andrew Norris, thank you so much for your expertise. We, we appreciate it. Safety and lack of regulation for this kind of vessel come more into question now that we know the tragic fate of the vessel. What a subcontractor who worked with Oceangate told CNN about experimental decisions when the Titan submersible was first built. Plus, journalists who documented the novelty of Oceangate and its underwater vessels looking back, were there red flags? Was the company being honest with them? We're back in a moment. And we're back with our world lead and the sad news in that search for the missing sub. The Coast Guard now says debris was found on the sea floor after a, quote, catastrophic implosion. Before this news, CNN spoke to a former subcontractor who worked on developing the sub, and the subcontractor told CNN that some of the construction materials and design choices were considered controversial when the vessel was being built in 2018. CNN's Veronica Miracle joins us now live from Everett, Washington, where OceanGate is headquartered. And Veronica, why exactly were these choices controversial at the time? Well, Jake, DJ Vernig, that, subcontract, that subcontractor who was actually part of the development and the testing of the Titan here in Everett, Washington, back in 2018, tells me that uh, these materials and the design choices that they used were controversial, not because they were innovative, but because they were not tried and true methods. Uh, he tells me they were also working very quickly to develop this submersible. He said what they were trying to accomplish was to create a lightweight submersible that could fit a lot of people. And one of the decisions they made was to use carbon fiber for the hull. Now, he said this is not a conventional application of that material. A conventional application would be like on an airplane and the material is under tension. But in a submersible, it is under pressure, the exact opposite force. And there's not a lot of testing around this. Here's what else he had to say about it. They created a pressure hull and took it to Woods Hole Institute and subjected it to the pressures that you would find at uh, depth where Titanic is, and it passed. But then the question is, well, if you do that repeatedly, then what happens? So these are the sorts of questions that if you have a long research and development program, you start answering. But if you really are pushing the envelope, um, there's no time to, you know, you're, you're answering those questions in real time. 
Now, Vernig said that he understood Stockton Rush's mission and Ocean Gate's mission was to explore uncharted waters and uncharted and undiscovered areas of the ocean. In fact, adventure tourism, he said, was not the goal. It was a means to an end in order to fund the research that they wanted to do. And he believed in that vision. Uh, but I did ask him if he would have gotten on that submersible, the Titan, and gone down to the depths of the Titanic. And he said, as someone with an engineering background and who worked on this development, he said he just would not have been comfortable. Jake? Hmm. Veronica Miracle and Everett Washington, thanks so much. Uh, joining us now to discuss is journalist uh, David Pogue. He went out with Ocean Gate last year for a story on CBS. Um, David, uh, we're talking now about the Coast Guard theory that there was a catastrophic implosion. You were on the vessel. Um, do you have any idea what might have happened to cause that catastrophic implosion? Uh, I have a thought. I, I know that the the turning media narrative is that Rush was this crazy guy going off half-cocked. Please remember that he designed this one-of-a-kind carbon fiber submersible with consultation from NASA and Boeing. There were uh, tests, there were prototypes. I walked around in his workshop with him and he showed me some of the previous carbon fiber experiments uh, that they, he had refined and improved until the carbon fiber was five inches thick unbroken by any holes or wires or anything, any screws. However, this submersible had titanium end caps and a nine inch thick plexiglass porthole. You have three different materials, whereas all existing titanic depth submersibles are just spheres made of titanium alloy, one material. And the risk here is that through repeated descent and rise, descent and rise, the difference in their density, the difference in the amount they heat up and cool down during those things might have introduced some little crack, some little gap. And remember, as we know, at those pressures, if a, a molecule of water gets in, it's over instantly. I know it's no great comfort to the families and spouses, but they did die instantaneously. They, they were not even aware that anything was wrong. So you went on the sub, but once you were just 37 feet underwater, your trip was, was aborted. Um, what was it like being inside the sub? Was it cramped? Was it uncomfortable? Was it exciting? What, what was it like? Uh, imagine a tubular minivan without seats. That's what it's like. You're, you're sitting on the floor. Uh, there's four people alternating right, left, right, left with their legs uh, in parallel. And then Stockton, the pilot, sits with his back against the back. Uh, driving the thing, and um, it's very modern looking, very cool lighting, music system. It's quite a departure from the complicated beeping, pinging submersibles of old. And, you know, everyone says, you know, Stockton Rush, you fool. But he said to me, yes, when I designed this with carbon fiber, everybody said I was an idiot. They, they said I was nuts, was his word. And then his famous line was, but when you think outside the box, everybody who's inside the box thinks you're crazy. So you also wrote in, in your piece for CBS about how the sub was lost for a few hours um, last year when you were there. You said the ship was able to send short texts to the sub, um, but it didn't know where the sub was underwater. And I wonder if looking back now, are you sure that Ocean Gate, are you sure that Stockton Rush were giving you the whole story? I, I can't read his mind, but I will say this. I know for a fact 
that there are glitches and malfunctions and weather delays in every single one of these submersibles. The ones that James Cameron took down, those had glitches and malfunctions and were canceled. The ones that Woods Hole uses, it is, uh, these things are one-offs, right? They're, they're custom built. There wasn't a 1.0 and this is 2.0. There's no spare. There's one of it. So yeah, things get jerry-rigged and things get fixed on the fly, but they all do this. And I, I got to believe that for the people who sign up for this, these are the kinds of people who go climb Mount Everest or swim with the sharks or ride on the Blue Origin rockets. It is the danger that makes it appealing to them. Well, speaking of signing up for it, you noted in your piece that, that you signed a waiver that mentioned death, possible death, as a risk uh, multiple times. You signed this before getting in the sub. Did you seriously consider that something could go catastrophically wrong as, as happened uh, this time? I, I mean, emotionally, I was terrified. I, I didn't sleep the night before. But intellectually, all the boxes were checked. You know, I had had a tour of this thing. I saw the redundant air systems, the redundant ballast systems, the redundant computer systems. Um, I saw what a safety culture they have in that outfit. They do checklists and briefings and inspections before and after every dive. And this is the key. At that time, the sub had made 20 uneventful dives to Titanic depths and back. And that's what reassured me. But of course, now, in hindsight, I, I see that that repeated rise and fall may have been its downside. Mm. David Pogue, thank you so much for sharing your experience and insight with us. We appreciate it. Good thing. Coming up next, inside the military's efforts to coordinate these kinds of large-scale search and recovery missions, I'm going to talk to a woman who helped lead salvage efforts from the USS Cole disaster and more. And we are following the tragic news, the discovery of debris on the ocean floor from the submersible that was headed to view the remains of the Titanic. Uh, We learned this afternoon that all five people on board the vessel are dead after what officials call a catastrophic implosion. Joining us now to discuss the recovery effort is retired Naval Captain Bobby Scully. Um, Captain Scully, thanks for joining us. Among Recovery missions that you helped lead include the 1996 TW Flight 800 crash in the Atlantic and the 2000 bombing of the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen by al-Qaeda. Not in terms of what happened, but in terms of how the recovery effort goes down. How will those, how how can you compare those with what um, they're about to do now? Thanks for having me, Jake. First, I want to send my deepest condolences to the family of the crew. Um, you know, this is a, a similar um, tragedy that uh, I was involved in earlier in my career. Um, the first thing is that um, we always want to try to um, recover anything possible that we can um, of the the victims of these tragedies, um, because we know how important it is for the families. Um, as the Admiral said, however, in the press brief, um, it's it's difficult under these circumstances uh, because of the nature of the catastrophic um, uh, casualty that happened here. Um, you know, like any explosion or in this in this particular case, implosion, 
um, it's just a, a terrible environment uh, that um, uh, happened. And uh, although the the salvers uh, uh, would like to bring back something um, for the families, it's going to be um, very difficult. But that's always the first concern when you're in a salvage operation or recovery operation like this. And then after that, uh, the next step is to bring back as much of the craft as possible because the next question is what happened? And so that's what they're gonna to try to do. And even in this deep environment, they have the resources um, on site there to start um, going through the debris field and trying to bring back what they can and also um, mapping the debris field so that they understand where each piece um, uh, fell in this case. Uh, so they can also use that, the, that data to determine what might've happened. The Coast Guard uh, says that the nine vessels on the scene right now are going to start to demobilize. What resources will still be needed at this time um, to engage in recovery instead of rescue? Well, they'll need the um, the the um, our, the deep ocean ROVs. Um, I believe they had um, two that they were operating in that depth. And um, they'll probably um, need the um, uh, the U.S. Navy's uh, flyaway um, deep ocean um, uh, salvage system that uh, is capable uh, capable of bringing up any heavy pieces. It sounded like there might still be some larger pieces of the Titan. Um, so that would be probably necessary to bring up any of the, the larger um, hull pieces. Um, the ROVs uh, have some capability of bringing up uh, pieces of debris, but they don't have the heavy lift capability that the other system would have. So if the um, investigation uh, is determined that they need uh, all the pieces, or at least a majority of the pieces, that system would need to be in place. But things like the ship that had the decompression chamber on it, that asset doesn't need to stick around because they won't wouldn't need that um, particular ship and um, they don't need the uh, aircraft with the sauna buoys uh, any longer and um, some of the other uh, ships that had um, maybe the shallower water ROVs those types of things um, are no longer resources that would need to stick around in my opinion all right Captain uh, Bobby Scully thank you so much for your expertise appreciate it we're going to take a closer look now at what the recovery mission of this tragedy might look like as crews look for the remains of the passengers killed, if that's even possible, not to mention the wreckage at the bottom of the ocean floor. Stay with us. And we're back with more of what the U.S. Coast Guard calls a catastrophic implosion of that Titan submersible. Debris was found near the site of the Titanic shipwreck, which, of course, is what the submersible was going to look at. Joining us now to discuss, Captain Mark Martin, an offshore manager and salvage master for Britannia's Gold. He's also a deep submergence pilot and diver. Um, Captain, obviously this is, we're told, a huge debris field. Um, where does the recovery effort even begin? Uh, hi, Jake. Um, I, I guess my understanding is that it's, it's not a, a huge debris field. Um, that may be a misconception for the, for the layperson, but I... I think both debris fields are in fairly close proximity to each other, which will make the, the salvage a bit easier. A salvage expert for the U.S. Navy said during that press conference that the 
five major pieces of debris that they found led them to believe that there was a catastrophic event, and they obviously have also been talking about a catastrophic implosion. How can one even tell? Um, that's actually fairly easy. Um, since, the, since the pressure vessel, the part that the, what, what we affectionately call as the people tank, um, where the passengers were is in, is in pieces, and there's nothing inside of it that would exceed the pressure of the sea pressure surrounding it. So it had to be an implosion versus an explosion. Um, they'll also be able to tell from the way that any, um, that any metal or carbon fiber is bent. It'll be bent inward versus outward. What kind of uh, equipment do you need to get debris of this size off the bottom of, of the ocean? And how many people do you need to, to be doing it? Um, I mean, you can, you can do it with one vessel if it's, uh, if it's equipped right. You need a crane that has a, a, a wire that'll go down to 4,000 meters. Um, and many of the vessels that are used in the offshore gas and oil and wind farm construction have those cranes on board. You also need um, at least one work class, if not two, ROVs. Um, that you that, that can reach the seafloor at that depth. Um, and then because it's going to be pieces, more than likely what they'll do is put down several recovery baskets, which basically look like uh, a, a half of a shipping container that's made out of mesh. Um, and the ROVs will pick up the larger pieces with their manipulator arms um, if there's a piece that's too large, then they'll have to rig some kind of strapping around it to be able to lift it with the, the crane um, and bring it all the way up on deck. But once they fill the, the recovery baskets with pieces, then the ROV will, um, will hook the sling that's on that basket up to the, uh, the crane hook and they'll They'll bring it up on deck, and then they'll, they'll empty it once they get that basket on deck. So, Captain Martin, you have a lot of expertise when it comes to de- the exploring the depths of the ocean as a deep submergence pilot and diver. Do you have an opinion on OceanGate uh, and this vessel, the Titan? Um, I've done a lot of interviews over the last couple of days. Um, and, you know, I... I do have some opinions. Um, I don't think it's the time for finger pointing or criticism. I think the only thing I will say is that um, this is really the only deep diving capable vessel out there that was that was not subjected to some sort of a classification, either through Germanischer Lloyd or um, uh, American Bureau of Shipping, which has rigorous testing. Um, so after so many dives, there's going to be non-destructive testing. At some point, the vehicle actually gets completely disassembled and reassembled, and, and there's a lot of testing. Um, and and the Titan was not subject to that. So that that's really, I guess, my one big issue. 
All right, Captain Mark Martin, we appreciate your, your candor and also your discretion at this moment. We appreciate you. Thank you. Also this hour, a joint session of Congress convening featuring India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi as some lawmakers are boycotting his appearance in protest. CNN is asking former President Barack Obama why U.S. leaders keep embracing these controversial world figures. Stay with us. Right now, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is addressing a joint session of U.S. Congress as part of his state visit to the U.S., the most elevated form of American diplomacy. And that has some raising alarms over Modi's drift toward authoritarianism in the view of his critics, including members of President Biden's own party, the Democrats, who are urging Biden to press India's popular leader on human rights and press freedom and religious freedom. Let's bring in CNN chief international anchor Christian Amanpour, who's in Athens, Greece, for us. And Christian, uh, you just interviewed former President Obama in Greece, the birthplace of democracy. He apparently has some thoughts on Modi's visit as well. Well, yes, because we're talking about democracy. And, of course, President Biden's theme of his presidency is to shore up democracy around the world. And this, for many Democrats, as you've said, and for many in the human rights uh, community, really puts the, the sort of the, the rub between autocracy and democracy. So I put that to President Obama. And he said clearly he had had to work with people like Xi Jinping and Modi. And it's, as he said, a complicated world in which national security often does have to take a you know huge priority this is what he said president biden man who you know extremely well has made the defense of democracy the sort of centerpiece of his of his administration it just so happens that right now there's also not just you know threats to democracy by dictatorships and autocrats but also illiberal democracy as well yeah. he has called the president of China, a dictator, and they're sticking with it. He is also hosting, as we speak, the prime minister of India, Modi, Mm. who is considered autocratic or at least a liberal Democrat. Mm. What is the point, I guess, or how should a president Mm. engage with those kinds of leaders, either in the naming of them or in the dealing with them? Look, it's it's complicated. Uh, The president of the United States has a lot of equities. And... When I was president, uh, you know, I would deal with uh, figures, in some cases who were allies, who, you know, if you, if you pressed me in private, you know, do they run uh, their governments uh, and, and their political uh, parties in, in ways that I would say are ideally democratic? I'd, I'd have to say no. Do you want to name but, names? But no, of course not. But you had to do business with them because... They're important for national security reasons. There, there are uh, you know, a, a range of uh, economic mm-hmm. interests. You know, I dealt with China to get the Paris Accords done. Uh, I dealt with Modi to get the Paris Accords done because I think climate change is something that transcends mm-hmm. uh, you know, any uh, particular momentary uh, issues. It, it, it's, a, it's a problem that humanity has got to deal with over the next several decades in a serious way. Um, I do think that it is appropriate for the President of the United States, uh, where he or she can, to uphold uh, those principles and to challenge, uh, whether behind closed doors or in public, um, trends that are troubling. And so um, I'm less concerned about labels than I'm concerned about 
you know, specific practices. Uh, you know, I think it is important for the President of the United States to say that if uh, you have Uyghurs in China uh, who are being placed in mass camps uh, and re-educated, quote-unquote, uh, that's a problem. That, that's a challenge to all of us, uh, and, and we have to pay attention to it. I think it is true that if uh, um, the president meets with Prime Minister Modi, then the protection of the Muslim minority in a majority Hindu India, uh, that's something worth mentioning. Uh, because, and by the way, if, if I had a conversation with uh, Prime Minister Modi, who I know well, part of my argument would be that uh, if you do not protect the rights of ethnic minorities in India, uh, then the, there is a strong possibility India at some point uh, starts pulling apart, and, and we've seen what happens when you start getting those kinds of large internal uh, um, conflicts. So, so that would be contrary to the interests not just of Muslim India, but also Hindu India. So I think it's important to be able to talk about these things honestly. You're never going to have a, a... Things are never going to be as clean as you'd like right. because the world is complicated. Complicated indeed, and of course, the uh, Indian Prime Minister is rather too close to comfort to President Putin importing his oil now and paying for it and buying it despite sanctions. But of course, the U.S. administration, I think, is trying to separate India, if it can, from a China-Russia-India coalition that's against U.S. interests. So I think that's a huge motivating factor. And in our full conversation with President Obama, he talks about President Trump's indictment. He talks about President Biden's re-election. He talks about where Ukraine fits on the global democracy map. Okay. Jake? Can't wait to watch. Christiane Amanpour, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Christiane's full interview with former President Barack Obama will air tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. We're going to go live to the U.S. Coast Guard Command Center in Boston next. They're, of course, leading the now recovery mission for the Titanic submersible. I'm also going to talk to the CEO of an underwater forensic company, forensics company, about what the investigation into what went wrong might look like. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. <clears throat> Pardon me. And we start this hour with the, quote, catastrophic implosion of the Titan submersible vessel, killing all five people on board the Coast Guard. The U.S. Coast Guard says debris was found this morning about 1,600 feet from the wreckage of the Titanic, which the submersible was going to explore. Remote search vehicles then found additional debris that included a catastrophic, that indicated rather, a catastrophic loss of pressure. Officials still do not know what caused the catastrophic implosion or exactly when that happened, although we do know the sub lost contact with its ship on the surface about an hour, 45 minutes into its estimated two-hour descent to the sea floor. Moments before the U.S. Coast Guard press conference, OceanGate, the company involved, released a statement saying it believes the lives of the people on board were killed. Uh, those five include Stockton Rush, who was the OceanGate CEO, Hamish Harding, a British adventurer and businessman, Paul-Henri Narjolet, he's a French submariner and uh, ex-Navy officer, plus Pakistani businessman Shazada Dawood and his teenage son, Suleiman. CNN's Jason Carroll is in Boston uh, for us, where the site of the U.S. Coast Guard Command Center is located. Jason, the U.S. Coast Guard Admiral called this catastrophic implosion. That was what they assessed it as. But there remain so many questions as to how this happened, 
and even whether they, they will ever be able to recover uh, any potential uh, human remains. Prevented again, uh, this all happening this morning uh, when these officials who were running this massive search at the time, search and rescue operation, uh, the remote operated vehicle that was down on the ocean floor early this morning at 8.55 a.m., came across that debris field. Right now what they are doing is the ROVs are still there on the ocean floor, still trying to map the ocean floor, still trying to figure out exactly what is down there in terms of debris. Uh, the Coast Guard earlier today, uh, the Rear Admiral gave his assessment of exactly what happened and, and in addition to that, a deep sea expert weighed in on exactly what was found. We found uh, five different major pieces of, of debris that uh, told us that it was the uh, remains of the Titan. The initial thing we found was the nose cone, which was outside of the pressure hull. Um, we then found a large debris field. Within that large debris field, uh, we found the, f the front end bell of the pressure hull. The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Upon this determination, we immediately notified the families. And Jake, I know you mentioned there at the top in terms of timing when this may have happened. I actually asked the Rear Admiral about that given that the Titan lost communication with the ship on the surface about an hour and 45 minutes into its descent. The Rear Admiral could not give specifics in terms of when this catastrophic failure happened, but he did say that sonar buoys, which have been placed in the area throughout this, throughout this entire effort, did not indicate, did not pick up any sort of acoustic type of sound that would have indicated some type of implosion. Jake. And Jason, uh, tell us more uh, about we, what we just heard from the co-founder of OceanGate. Right. The, the co-founder, exactly, releasing a statement just a short while ago, this coming from Guillermo uh, Sonline. He said the following. He said, it's a tragic loss for the families and for the ocean exploration community in general. All five crew members were passionate explorers, and they died doing what they believed in. Those of us in the community that work at that depth know that there's always a risk there's pressure, so there's pressure down, so in, there's pressure down so intense that if there is a failure, it's in an instant, catastrophic failure, and we all know that it's a risk, a risk that uh, has been talked about by those who were on board. Uh, now we have an answer that so many were asking what happened, but again, there are a lot of questions as to now why it happened, Jake, and could it have been avoided? Yeah. Jason Carroll in Boston for us. Thank you so much. Some of the debris that was found include the tail cone of the Titan submersible. That piece, along with any other evidence that was found, will most certainly be looked at as officials try and figure out what exactly caused this vessel to implode. Joining us now, CNN's Tom Foreman. Tom, show us where these discovered parts used to be on the Titan. Yeah, this is really important to the investigation here. First piece they found was this, this sort of tail cone that sticks out here that says Ocean Gate on it. Then, if you, you take that part away, they also found the nose cone over here, which contains that window up front that we've seen so many pictures of. And then they found this part back here. These are both the titanium caps on each end. You've 
heard so much about. The reason they know automatically that everyone was lost once they found those parts is the rest of this is nothing but a carbon fiber tube. There is right. nothing in there to protect anyone. So those are the three pieces they, they found, and here's where they found them. We mentioned the idea that they were maybe uh, um, an hour and a half into their descent. An hour and a half into the descent of a two-hour descent would theoretically put them somewhere in this area, ballpark. And the, the Titanic is actually in two parts down here, separated by a, about a half mile. They were in this general vicinity of the bow, sort of out in this area. That's where they found all the pieces, in an area where there's no other debris. So that gives us an idea of, of how explosive this moment was, because these portions here were also separated a bit from each other. We don't know how much they drifted as they went to the bottom, but if they happened over the, over the bottom, that's what happened. Right, and just, just keep that up for one second, just to give people an idea of how deep this is. Oh, this sure. is this is the Grand Canyon. Sure. This is the Eiffel Tower. That's the Statue of Liberty. Just a little speck right, compared right. to how deep this is. It's, an, it's yeah, two and a half miles, roughly. It's, it's a long way down. And the pressure down there is unbelievably, unbelievably intense. Impossible. The pressure down there is about 5,000 pounds for every square inch of that exposed vessel. Right. Every inch of it. 5,000 pounds. It's an immense amount of pressure. So obviously, um, people aren't just like scuba diving down here. It's too deep. No. You, you would die. Um, what are the what what are the the vehicles, the vessels that found this? Well, well, interestingly enough, nuclear submarines are going to operate way up here. They're not going down here. They can't go down here. This is too this deep. Is a very a very forbidding area. So, what went down there and found it were these uh, robotic, uh, con- remotely controlled diving devices, which went down there and looked around. Not really great devices for looking around, better for retrieving and collecting things. But in this case, this is what was used to find what was after. This would also be what is used now in all likelihood to retrieve what is down there. And retrieving everything down there is really important as much as you possibly can. Because as with any accident investigation, you've seen it many times, what investigators would absolutely like to get back to is a reconstructed version of as many pieces of this as they possibly can because that will offer clues. Did the window fail first? Mm-hmm. Did one of these seams fail along here? Was there a problem with the carbon fiber itself? Had it become stressed and did it give way? They may not get answers, but the more pieces they can collect, a piece at a time with those robotic rovers down there, picking them up, as a guest told you a while ago, loading them into baskets, bringing them to the surface, the more chance they have of putting it all back together question is, how much can they invest in doing that? How long can they invest and how successful can they be? Yeah, and, and one of the things that was interesting that David Pogue was talking about is he said most uh, vessels uh, are just this one um, kind of material. This one had, had three different kinds of material, yep. in, including the window. And his theory, just having been on the vehicle, was that like any sort of fissures that emerged in between, yep. just from going up, did they have one over there yep, too? Yep. Um, just from going up and down uh, and, and these different chemicals reacting differently to heat and cold and, and pressures, right. that, that's where even an, a, a, a molecule of a fissure of a crack could have like had all the water coming in at that depth. That's absolutely true. And one other thing to think about that will be asked about a lot in this, most deep dive vessels like this are basically round, they're spheres, to put it all the same pressure. This is a cylinder. Very, very, very different dynamic forces. Yeah. All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Uh, joining us now to discuss uh, Tom Maddox. He was part of a Titanic expedition in 2005. He's the CEO of Underwater Forensic Investigators. Tom, 
Uh, thanks for joining us. Unfortunately, under tragic circumstances, what does an underwater investigation look like now that we know that the, the Titan submersible, submersible imploded and is on uh, the, the bottom of the ocean along with the Titanic? Well, Jake, thanks for having me on. My condolences to everyone involved, all the families, friends of those who perished. In an underwater investigation, it's you can think more related to a, an airplane investigation. We've seen how that happens. The first part is recovering all the pieces that they can, as was just mentioned earlier, and try to put that together like a puzzle to find out where the failure point was. Um, that's going to give us an indication of what happened. Um, if we can gather any information such as data collection, uh, uh, you know, design engineering ish, uh, uh, plans, things that we can gather over the years and put them together um, and then try to basically solve a mystery and, and put a puzzle together to tell us what happened. So no one knows for sure exactly why the vessel imploded. Some of the debris that was found includes the tail cone of the Titan what, what do you make of what was found? Obviously, we know nothing for sure, but do you have a, a best guess as to, as to what might have happened based on what was found and the condition it was found in? Well, sure. We don't have any facts now. Anything that I state would be total speculation, but my theory at this point was that there was a, some type of catastrophic failure uh, on the descent, as was mentioned in the, and as believed by a lot of experts. Um, that catastrophic failure probably was instantaneous. There are two ways that could happen in that water column. One is there could be an explosion, which could be an internal explosion. Uh, that atmosphere inside the sub is oxygenate, oxygenated, and that could be highly explosive. So that could happen. But there are also through-hull fittings for connectors and, and devices that are basically breach, breachable from the, the immense pressure. So at that pressure, like you said, they're probably around four or 5,000 pounds per square inch over 350 times the pressure on Earth. Any small leak could cause an immediate implosion, which would destroy the craft. So when we see parts of the craft, they were I, I'm just amazed that they were able to that quickly locate some of this debris. Um, what they would do now is go back to that site and like cookie crumbs, try to find a trail as to where that would lead. Because even though there was an explosion or implosion at that point, the parts could be scattered and some of them could still be uh, slightly buoyant to the fact that tides and, and, and currents could have drifted them away. So the big project right now is going to be trying to collect those parts. They won't just go randomly collect them. They'll mark them. They'll indicate where they were and they'll lay out a map of where those parts uh, were found. All right, Tom Maddox, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. We appreciate it. Coming up, we're talking to a diver about what happens during a catastrophic implosion. That's ahead, plus exclusive new reporting about the special counsel investigating Donald Trump's handing, handling of classified documents. Special counsel Jack Smith says he has more recordings of Donald Trump. And we're back with what the U.S. Coast Guard is now calling a, quote, catastrophic implosion, a tragic incident of the submersible that was heading to explore the Titanic wreckage. The exploration company OceanGate says all five passengers on board the vessel are now dead. Let's get right to CNN's Paula Newton, who's in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And Paula, this was a massive search and rescue operation. Now, of course, rescue is out of the question. It's a recovery operation. But the Coast Guard says it still has rovers in the water. Why is that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and at this point, when we talk about what they're recovering, uh, it's very important to this whole investigation, which will likely be led by the Transportation Safety Board uh, here in Canada. As your guests have already said, it's not just for the families, but for the industry as a whole to understand exactly what happened. I will say the Transportation Safety Board doing an investigation here, you know, 25 years ago on Swiss Air 111. I mean, that uh, accident, that air accident had to be investigated in waters that were much more shallow. And yet it was just so such a complex investigation as it was. They are thankful that right now the resources are out there that can do as much salvage as possible at that sea bottom to recover the debris. Because again, it will contribute to a more fulsome picture of exactly what went on here. And especially given the tragic circumstances, they also want to bring a measure of peace to the families. And whatever they can say about how it happened, when it happened, and the conclusive proof that they can gather, all of that will matter. Paula Newton in Halifax, thank you so much. Let's bring in a diving expert Rick Mercar. He's an international training director at the National Association of Cave Divers and is a retired Army officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, Rick, thanks for joining us. The Coast Guard says that they believe that the sub, the Titan, experienced a, quote, catastrophic implosion near the wreckage of the Titanic. Um, what happens to a person when anyone is suddenly exposed to water at that depth, likely two miles below sea level? Yeah, uh, first of all, my condolences to the families of these explorers, and maybe April 15th should be a day of remembrance for explorers in any maritime exploration. So the pressure, um, right now we're at one atmosphere, and uh, if I'm going to put a number on that, we're roughly about 15 pounds per square inch. If we look at the time frame, that 145 that they lost contact, and we start to assume, and I can only speculate here, and I agree with the forensics experts on how they would do this uh, reconstruction of the accident scene. We look at that, and if we look at, and say, a respectable descent rate of approximately uh, 85 feet per minute, and that's saying that you know, you're getting to the Titanic at two and a half to three hours of a descent time, that would put the Titan at approximately 8,700 feet. That pressure alone is at 265 atmosphere. It's absolute. 265 times what it is at the surface. Not knowing where this implosion actually occurred, and um, speculate again, it probably occurred somewhere on the descent, and it might have been a small thing. It might have been a pure instantaneous thing, which sounds bad, but we actually probably hope that that's actually what happened and that these gentlemen, they didn't even get a chance for their brain to communicate that there was some danger uh, going on. It just, boom, happened. Um, I can't do an implosion simulation, but I, you, know, you can inflate a balloon right to maximum expansion of the latex material, hit it with a needle, and you get that instantaneous effect, and that's probably what occurred on this implosion. So as we look at this pressure going on, you know, we get down to even that 8,700 feet, and you've already got approximately 3,900 30, 30, PSI for every square inch of pressure on that hull. And then you get down to the Titanic, you're at 5,600 PSI. So that pressure continues to build and build and build. The Titanic, of course, is at 380 bar, 380 atmospheres absolute. The human body cannot withstand that kind of pressure. It would have been instantaneous to be hit with that, just to put it into perspective. The, the questions, of course, you're looking at, we're talking about the carbon fiber centerpiece. Um, being an electrical mechanical engineer and having worked with various materials, I, I kind of question, as many have, 
you got the similar metals between the titanium and the, the plexiglass window and this material of carbon fiber. Mm-hmm. So anywhere you have dissimilar materials, you have a joint. That joint is subject to failure. Uh, one of the early briefings, they talked about the landing frame. Th- that almost immediately tells me that there's some compromisation of the integrity of the hull leading yeah. to the implosion. All right, Rick, Mar- itself. Rick Marcar, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. What could the recovery effort for the Titan debris look like, and will any of it be pulled up to the surface? That's next. And we're back with our worldly, the catastrophic implosion of the submersible Titan, which the company, OceanGate, says killed all five passengers on board. With me now to try to understand what could have gone so dreadfully wrong with the sub and what the recovery effort might look like is Brian Clark. He's an expert in naval operations. He's a former Navy submariner and also a senior fellow and director at the Hudson Institute. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining us. The Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard, said the ship imploded uh, what do you, and obviously we're, this is all speculation, but, but you're informed, you're an expert. What, what might have gone wrong with the vessel to cause an implosion? Well, Jake, what I'm thinking might have happened is uh, the cyclic stress of repeated uh, surfacing and diving with the carbon fiber uh, hull of the, the vehicle might have introduced some flaws into that carbon fiber structure. Uh, when you look at the research on carbon fiber, if uh, the research focuses on compression being you know, one of the, the things that's not well analyzed, how well it performs under compression stress as opposed to expansion stress, so tensile stress, uh, which is normally what you see with an airplane that's built out of uh, carbon fiber as tensile stress as opposed to compression. So I think that might have been what happened. The cyclic stress eventually caused a flaw in the carbon fiber structure to give way and uh, caused a catastrophic implosion. So U.S. Coast Guard officials, um, they're saying now that they're going to continue to search for pieces of the sub and any remains of, of the passengers. Um, just how difficult is it to, to search at this depth of the ocean? Right. Uh, it's extremely challenging. Obviously, you know, people can't go down there. Divers really can't go down there. So you're going to have to be dependent on remotely operated vehicles, as we've seen, uh, been deployed down there. And they'll search the bottom using sonar primarily because it's faster to identify objects, and then they'll turn to using cameras you know, with lights, obviously, to, to identify whether those objects are pieces they want to retrieve, and then they you know, bring robotic arms out to go and, and put them into baskets and bring to the surface. Um, but it's pretty painstaking, as you'd imagine, because you're searching a debris field that's pretty wide, trying to differentiate pieces from uh, ocean life and, and pieces that are potentially the Titanic that might be in the same debris field. What kind of safety features should vessels like the submersible, uh, the Titan, what should they have in place if they're going to travel almost 13,000 feet underwater? Yeah, really, we really need multiple systems to have some redundancy uh, for each of these potential failure modes. So uh, I think one thing, you know, the design of the vehicle was some, somewhat suspect, you know, because of the use of yeah, as we talked about, titanium end bells with this graphite or rather carbon fiber body, which is an unproven technology in this application. But if, if you're going to do that, then you have to also have uh, more means of being able to communicate with the surface. Uh, just the one acoustic radio, acoustic communication system is probably not sufficient. Needs better navigation systems to be able to tell exactly where it is and, and uh, notify others where it is. It needs a beacon so you can find it if it does get lost. It does, didn't have any of those things. 
Um, and then you need a way to get the crew, allow the crew to get out if they were to be able to surface. One of the challenges with this vehicle is the door is bolted on from the outside. So even if they successfully surfaced, they still could not let themselves out. They would have to have been uh, retrieved by somebody coming from the outside and unbolting the door. So there's a number of features that this vehicle incorporated as an experimental vessel that we wouldn't want to include in a, in a manned submersible that we took out on missions uh, in the military, for example. All right, Brian Clark, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. What two IRS whistleblowers told lawmakers about Hunter Biden and what kinds of crimes, charges they think he should be facing? Then the special counsel says it has more recordings of Donald Trump and we'll have the exclusive new details next. In our law and justice lead, two whistleblowers, two told Congress that IRS investigators recommending charging the president's son, Hunter Biden, with attempted tax evasion and other felonies far more serious than the charges Hunter Biden ultimately pleaded guilty to. This is according to transcripts of the whistleblower's private interviews with lawmakers. CNN's Evan Pettis is with us now. Evan, what do you make uh, of these whistleblowers saying that the IRS wanted actually tougher charges for Hunter Biden? Well, Jake, this uh, this matches some of the reporting CNN has done over the last uh, year or two that indicated there was a lot of disagreement behind the scenes about this case, the strength of the case, and whether to go tougher on Hunter Biden. And according to this testimony that was released, uh, these hundreds of pages that we reviewed today, uh, the IRS was recommending 11 total counts against Hunter Biden, including felonies uh, for federal tax evasion and filing false tax returns, false statements in, uh, included in that uh, for years 2014 and others. Uh, in the end, what Hunter Biden agreed to with prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney, uh, with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware, a Trump appointee, by the way, uh, was for two misdemeanors. That's what he is going to appear in court in the next week to uh, to finally plead guilty to. Uh, Gary Shapley, one of the uh, the whistleblowers who did appear before congressional investigators, this is what he said. He said, quote, I am alleging with evidence that the DOJ provided preferential treatment, slow walked this investigation and did nothing to avoid obvious conflicts of interest in this investigation. And Jake, it should be noted that it's not unusual for investigators and prosecutors to have disagreements before they, uh, you know, as you go through these cases, it happens all the time. It happens in our newsroom, right, between reporters and editors about the strength of a story or, or, or a case. Uh, and what do, you, what do you know about this claim by the whistleblowers that there were WhatsApp messages between Hunter Biden uh, and a business partner that referred to President Biden? Right. And this is at the center, Jake, of the allegation that they're making, which is that there was some kind of political interference, that there are people who are put, putting obstacles uh, in front of these investigators as they were trying to, to, to look at certain evidence. And in this case, what Shapley is saying is that there were these WhatsApp messages that he believes were not fully investigated, or at least he doesn't believe were fully investigated. And I'll read you just a part of one from allegedly from Hunter Biden that they say they had. And this is to a business partner a Chinese business partner, partner, and he's pressuring this person to pay up. And according to it, it says, I am sitting here with my father, and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. And it goes on to talk about how his father is there, and they, everybody will regret if they don't pay up. And so, Jake, the question for the, 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 reason, the reason why this matters is that Joe Biden has repeatedly said that he never never had any conversations with his son about his business. 
All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Also in our Law and Justice lead today, we have some new exclusive CNN reporting that Special Counsel Jack Smith has obtained multiple recordings of former President Donald Trump as part of his investigation into Trump's handling or alleged mishandling of classified documents. The clips were provided to prosecutors by Trump's legal team, as well as at least from one other additional source. This revelation comes as the special counsel's office has begun producing the evidence in the classified documents case to Trump's legal team as discovery, I believe is what that's called. CNN's Paula Reed and Ali Honig are with us. And, and, and Paula, we knew about the one recording mm-hmm. of Trump from July 2021 at Bedminster, where he's talking about some document involving a potential attack on Iran. He was meeting with a bunch of Mark Meadows autobiographer uh, I mean, it's kind of a contradiction in terms, but some people helping Mark (laughs) Meadows write his autobiography. What do we know about these these uh, other recordings? That's exactly right. We broke the story about that recording and then it was included in the indictment. So last night when the special counsel revealed that it had interviews, plural, well, that piqued our interest. So we called our sources and we learned that, in fact, the Trump team has provided about half a dozen additional interviews to prosecutors. They were subpoenaed in March of this year to provide any materials related to General Mark Milley. And we've learned that they've handed over multiple recordings where Trump can be heard talking about Mark Milley, but he does not reference any classified documents. Now, the special counsel also has at least one other source providing them recordings. And that is one of the, that also includes one of the copies of that Bedminster interview that they originally got. Now, I want to emphasize, during the discovery process, as Ellie knows as well, you have to hand over everything you've collected, and not all of these are necessarily going to be pertinent to the criminal case. And we have multiple sources telling us that none of these additional interviews rise to the level of potentially incriminating conduct like that original Bedminster interview. Ellie, how valuable could these recordings be to the special counsel's team? Well, Jake, tapes are gold to prosecutors. They're the best possible evidence you have because you get to play for the jury the defendant's own words and the defendant's own voice. And if we look at a crucial conversation like the one at Bedminster, where Donald Trump is acknowledging that he knows he has these documents, that he knows they were never declassified, and he's apparently referencing the contents of them. This is the document, the recording that Paula reported on, which appeared in the indictment. It's the single most important piece of evidence that I've seen in the indictment. If you didn't have a tape, you'd have to call an eyewitness. And eyewitnesses can be cross-examined. You don't remember exactly what words were used. You may have some bias or incentive to lie one way or other. But if you have a tape, you just play the tape and that's the best evidence you can have as a prosecutor. Paula, you're also reporting uh, that sources are saying that during the summer of 2021, when the Bedminster thing happened, multiple people were making recordings of Trump, which it's not surprising, I suppose, in some ways. But what do, you, what do you know about that? Well, the most surprising thing is that the former president knew he was being recorded when he made these comments about classified documents and for these other interviews. Now, during this time, the former president was in the habit of having his aides record any conversations with people working on books, journalists, even if they were friendly. But that has created a potential archive of evidence for prosecutors. And it's our understanding that most of these recordings were uploaded to the iCloud. And it's unclear, though, if prosecutors were able to access that. But in trying to, you know, protect himself against any incorrect reporting, he has provided a potential trove of evidence for prosecutors. Sometimes that happens. I mean, Hillary Clinton had that private email server, so she theoretically, so she wouldn't have to hand things over to pesky House Republicans. I don't know if I agree with that characterization, but okay. have me on. I'd love to talk about that. Okay, well, then. I'm just saying sometimes you try to do something to protect yourself and it ends up hurting yourself. Both of them made their lives more complicated. That's Absolutely, all, okay, no well, doubt. That's all I'm saying. Ellie, 
Does this signal anything to you about a timeline for the trial? Well, Jake, it tells me that everyone's pushing, except for Donald Trump, for a quick trial. Prosecutors have begun to turn over vast amounts of discovery. They've said they're ready within 70 days. The judge has set a tentative trial date, which is unlikely to hold for August. The X factor here, though, is going to be Donald Trump. He's the defendant. He's the one who has the right to file motions to prep. So two of the three necessary parties are on board. We'll see if Donald Trump goes along with that. I suspect he's going to want to slow things down. All right, Ellie Honig and Paula Reed, thanks to both of you. Things are getting ugly on the Hill. Republicans are calling other Republicans' names over impeachment resolutions and much more. That's next. In our politics lead, tensions between two Republican firebrands, far-right firebrands, have reportedly boiled over after a heated exchange between Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, during which... Reportedly, Green told Boebert on the House floor, as reported by the Daily Beast, quote, I've donated to you, I've defended you, but you've been nothing but a little bitch to me, unquote. This is how Green and Boebert, asked about that report, responded. So was that you- Daily Beast story about you calling her an expletive accurate? I will not confirm or deny. <laughs> Can you comment on the report that she cursed at you on the floor? Like I said, I'm not in this Well, I mean, some might beg to differ on the middle school thing. Uh, Let's talk about it. Uh, Laura Barone-Lopez, Green is upset beyond the calling her a little bitch. And by the way, these are all in quotes, so don't get mad at me. I'm just quoting Congresswoman. Uh, Green is upset with Boebert because she claims Congresswoman Boebert stole Marjorie Taylor Green's impeachment resolution and reintroduced it with her name on it. What What do you make of this all? Uh, Well, it it does reek of middle school or high school. I mean, it's essentially them taking very online tactics into real life and just they're constantly seeking attention. And both of these members have been that way since they entered office. Um, You know, it's something the impeachment resolutions themselves are not something that Speaker McCarthy supports at this point right now. He doesn't want to bring these to the floor. Um, But Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert clearly want to, in a way, out-extreme each other. And we've seen that from the beginning since they've since they've joined the House. Um, I I think that really it's just, you know, creating another distraction that ultimately shows that Speaker McCarthy has a lot of difficulty keeping his members in line. And I remember a few months ago, Margaret, I remember uh, Lauren Boebert, if memory serves, kind of making fun of Marjorie Taylor Greene with the whole Jewish space lasers nonsense um, so I guess I can understand why Marjorie Taylor Greene would feel a little bit afraid. Been a simmering rivalry in the you stole my publicity stunt camp. Uh, I think it sort of shows two things. One is the idea that the right flank is putting so much pressure on the caucus itself. Really, it's making it hard for Kevin McCarthy to operate. It's making it hard for each other. That it's, um, it's become like a story inside a story that could actually undercut the marginal power of the Republican Party in the House right now. The other is, let's just think about what this is all about. It is it about an effort to impeach President, President Biden, Biden right. on the basis of... I'm not what? quite, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, there's no merit to a lot of these. That, I mean, that's what it's about. I mean, it might be human sacrifice for all I know, I mean, in terms of the <laughs> allegations we hear about Joe Biden. Let's, let's turn to another wing of the Republican Party, another minority wing of the Republican Party. And this is former Republican Congressman Will Hurd, Republican of Texas, uh, We now have another entrant into uh, the field. Uh, He's joined the race. He's directly challenging frontrunner Donald Trump in his announcement video. Take a look. 
If we nominate a lawless, selfish, failed politician like Donald Trump, who lost the House, the Senate, and the White House, we all know Joe Biden will win again. Republicans deserve better. America deserves better. It's common sense. With Hurd's entry, we now have a, a dozen high-profile candidates on the Republican side. Um, what do you think of his chances, Jonah? Low. Uh, look, I, I like Will Hurd a lot. If I could anoint someone a president, he'd be on a list. I think he's qualified. He's good. He's smart. He's a decent guy. Um, I think this. I mean, the, the Trump campaign came out with a statement saying this has more to do with the fact that Ron DeSantis is kind of sputtering. And I think there might be a grain of truth there that mm. it doesn't seem like. DeSantis, and I think DeSantis is going to have better days ahead, but like, it doesn't seem like DeSantis is catching fire the way they want it to. So it feels like the field is a little more wide open. And, um, and again, this is a problem with both parties. It's worse these days with Republicans. There's too much incentive to run for president, even if you know you can't win, because it boosts your name ID. It, it gets, it's, it's good for you for other reasons. Books, speeches, cable TV appearances. All that stuff. And yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not questioning his motives. I think he's a very patriotic guy, served his country, but I just don't see it right now. So we had him on the show uh, a few, I don't know if days or weeks, everything is a blur. Uh, <laughs> but after the indictment of Donald Trump for the classified documents case, we had him on with, uh, with Valerie Plain because they're both former CIA officers who really understand the significance of classified documents and the importance of them not being revealed. And he was very strong. I actually had no idea he was, I'd heard whispers for months, but I didn't know he was actually going to run for president. And he was very strong on that issue. He does have an ability in the way that Chris Christie as a former U.S. attorney does to make a national security argument against Donald Trump that could be effective. I don't know if the Republican base wants to hear it, though. Uh, although Trump will point out accurately that Heard voted with him 80 percent of the time in the House. Heard, Heard voted against the impeachment over Ukraine when Trump was accused of jacking up Zelensky over javelin missiles. So, you know, Trump's got a pretty good defense, which is, hey, you were there with me before. Now you're not. This is just opportunistic. Um, the, the problem is, I think Hurd's a good guy, too. He's terribly bright. He's, I think it's good for the country. People like that want to serve. He's just going to split the anti-Trump vote even more. It's what Trump said when Tim Scott got in the race. The more, the merrier. And he's right. You, you, there's an irreducible sum, maybe even 40 or 50 percent of Republicans who just will never abandon Trump. It's a little lower. But the rest of them, the other 55 or 60, are going to be divided between 10 or 11 candidates and watch Trump waltz right back in. I would say there's probably really only three anti-Trump candidates, Heard, Christie, and Asa Hutchinson. Hutchinson. Don't you think that that's yeah. right? I mean, the others right. are trying to walk along. And the difference is that Heard is from a really important state, Texas. He's 45 years old. He's a person of color. He, remember, he'd gotten the car with Beto O'Rourke, so he's doing the bipartisan thing. He's appealing to the youth vote. If, if there was a general election between Will Hurd and Joe Biden, Biden's people would be worried about the center of the country. Abortion would be maybe the only issue things would pivot on. But that's not the way the political system in the U.S. works right now. It is a primary-driven presidential contest. And in this primary, it's very difficult to understand the math. And you just wrote a great column about this, I think, a week ago, about the idea of do Republicans even want to win? Uh, right. an, uh, uh, the election itself, as opposed to the primary. Yeah, well, look, there's this weird dysfunctional thing going on on the right. Particularly, you can see it in, in Congress, where with like the, the Freedom Caucus clawing back the deal with, with Kevin McCarthy, where having a win is proof that you, you compromise too much, right? right? Having a win means you sold out. Right. Losing proves you are pure, right? right. And and this, this sort of nihilistic death wish of... of 
you know, anybody who actually gets something accomplished, well, they've sold their souls to the deep state, is just the most dysfunctional, asinine form of politics. And it's a very strong strain on the right. It's very prevalent. Uh, meanwhile, the heat in the Republican primaries remains between Trump and DeSantis. I want you to take a listen. Uh, again, uh, DeSantis and Trump are going at it about COVID. DeSantis makes Trump into be the Fauci guy. And, and, uh, and Trump says, hey, you have more deaths uh, in your state than uh, Andrew Cuomo did in New York. Take a listen. Florida was the third worst state in deaths by COVID. That's your scorecard. It's a sad scorecard. So why do they keep saying that the sanctimonious did a good job? New York had fewer deaths. And again, that's the way you have to, I guess, evaluate a job. When you are saying that Cuomo did better on COVID than Florida did, you are revealing yourself to just be full of it. Uh, again, this is something that is DeSantis is clearly trying to use to tear away some of the, the core bit of Trump's base to show that he's more right, more to the right than Trump is on an issue that, you know, the reason that so many Republicans don't believe in the efficacy of, of the covid vaccines is in part because of the way former President Trump approached the whole response to covid and doubting scientists and doubting uh, the, res- the overall scientific response to it. But DeSantis is seeing this as well as uh, LGBTQ rights and others as a way to move to the right of Trump. Fascinating stuff. More to come. Thanks to all. Concert goers got treated to a very different kind of show thanks to Mother Nature. But first, here's CNN's Alex Marquardt, who's in for Wolf Blitzer with what's next in the Situation Room. Alex? Well, we'll uh, uh, Jake, we'll be speaking with a number of people who knew uh, people on board that fateful trip uh, on the Titan, including Aaron Newman, who knew several people. Uh, he was also on board the Titan when it went down to the Titanic back in 2021. Newman is actually an investor in OceanGate, the company that owns the Titan. And he spoke about the CEO, Stockton Rush, saying that he has a vision. He built that vision. This was just the beginning of his vision. So Jake will be speaking with him and several others about that tragedy on the Situation Room right at the top of the hour. Jake. Devastation in Matador, Texas, where a tornado killed four people and injured 10 others. The twister hit this small town about 280 miles northwest of Dallas last night. Crews are ramping up efforts to restore power there, with temperatures expected to reach the hundreds over the weekend. Everyone who lives in Matador is accounted for, but search teams are looking for visitors or drivers who might have been in the area. And northwest of Texas, in Colorado, people saw this. Heavy hail injured nearly 100 people attending a Louis Tomlinson concert at the Red Rocks Amphitheater. Authorities say at least seven people had to be rushed to the hospital. They are, thankfully, all expected to survive. Tomlinson tweeted in part, quote, devastated about the show tonight. Hope everyone's okay. Sending you all love. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have an invite. The TikTok at Jake Tapper. I'm back there. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with... Alex Marquardt, he's in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.